All right, guys, let's get into um, God's Word. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 13. If you don't own a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you or if you need one this morning. Um, feel free to keep uh, that Bible. It could be our gift to you if, you if you need one. But Luke chapter 13 is where we are. I'm actually going to start back in the text we dealt with last week in verse 10. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 35. And God willing... We're going to do it. So Luke 13, verse 10. says this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Is it... It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. But at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Wow, Lord. There is so much here, and yet, even just reading through it, there is already so much in this text that just impresses itself upon us immediately. 
we are amazed at once of, of your great holiness. We're amazed at, at once at our ability to deceive ourselves and God to, to, uh, give ourselves over to, to sin and, and find ourselves removed from the kingdom, Lord. We see these trembling realities in this text and we're only just about to dive in. God, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. I pray that you would open our ears. I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray it cannot be said of us that you, you have, 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 have come after us time and time again, longing to bring us under your wing, and yet we would not. We're not willing. God, I pray incline our hearts this morning to be willing. God, I pray that your grace, your spirit will move upon us in such a way that though we may have come in obstinate, we may have come in resistant, we would leave saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do a great work in what little time we have. You created the universe with a word. I'm pretty sure you could do a lot in the next minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, just to get straight to the point, uh, we have 26 verses here. Again, some of them I've dealt with before, so it'll make it a little easier for me. But I'm going to divide these verses under three headings. First, and you should see it there on your handout, we resist. Second, we miss. And then third, strangely, surprisingly, we bless. Um, beginning with this idea of we resist, uh, in particular looking at verses 10 through 21, that's essentially what we did last week. But because of how I think the flow of thought is moving and there's these uh, connections uh, all throughout that uh, I think we need to review last week a little bit to make sense of where we're going uh, this morning. So this first point is largely just going to be uh, for those of you who perhaps uh, missed last week or like me, honestly, sometimes I can't even remember what I, I'm the preacher and I can't remember what I preached on the week before. So I'm sure you guys have similar uh, issues. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to dive in here and kind of review a little bit and then we'll make our way into some newer stuff uh, in points two and three. Because they really kind of flow out of what we dealt with last week. So first, we resist looking at verses 10 through 21, but in particular verses 18 to 21 in those two parables. Um, last week, if you were here, you may recall I essentially built my entire sermon on a single word there uh, in verse 18. Namely, therefore. Where uh, Luke gives us this little uh, uh, narrative kind of description and, he, and he's talking about Jesus and he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what I saw in this is that this word therefore connects the uh, scene in the synagogue immediately prior that goes down in there about this woman being healed and all these things with the two parables that Jesus goes on to tell about the kingdom of God. He says, because of what just happened in the synagogue, therefore, let me tell you these two parables about what the kingdom of God is really like. The, king, the, the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows to a tree. The kingdom is like a little bit of leaven that spreads through the whole lump and you remember that what this led to is a discussion concerning unmet expectations. I think what we are meant to gather by the connection here between these parables and this scene in the synagogue is that Jesus is entering into and, and engaging these unmet expectations that the religious leaders in particular in Israel had about what the Messiah and his kingdom would be like. They thought Messiah would come in in grand fashion, that, that he would restore them to power, prestige, worldly, uh, uh, you know, position of authority and all that sort of stuff. And yet here Jesus is 
looking nothing like that, claiming to be the Messiah, and yet, no way, this can't be him. Jesus says, therefore, let me tell you what the kingdom is really like. He's speaking into the gap that forms between our expectations of what God is and what he will be and do and what he's really like and what he's really doing. Jesus is trying to help bridge the gap so he speaks these parables, if you will. Therefore, Jesus is telling these two parables. You with me so far? Okay. There were three things in particular that we brought out from these parables that Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God, I think. Um, And I'll just kind of real quickly reiterate them for you. But the first thing we learn about the kingdom of God is that it's organic. When we look at these parables, what we need to see is that the kingdom, if it's like this, it's organic, meaning it's kind of slow growing and developing. It certainly is moving, but it's more like a seed to a tree. And kind of the slow process of development. More like that than like the dropping of dynamite. Right? It's an organic process. Hence the seed to a mustard tree or, or, or the, uh, the leaven that slowly, I mean just a pinch, slowly permeates the whole lump of dough. So first, it's organic. Second, we saw that the kingdom of God is internal. It's fundamentally internal, I should say. It makes its way out. It, 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 it makes a debut. You will see its effect, but it first and foremost fundamentally is an internal reality. God moves on the heart. You see that in those parables when uh, talking about, in particular, kind of the leaven and how it's hidden in the lump of dough. And how it goes inside and then the effect starts to take place on the outside. But it's first an internal thing. It moves on the hearts of men on the inside. Religious leaders of the day so focused on externalities. Jesus is saying it's not going to be like that. It's going to first deal on the inside of the cup. Clean there. Uh, lastly, what we saw is that uh, the kingdom of, of God is, is, is going to be universal. It's going to be universal. Now, in Israel, they wanted the kingdom of the Messiah to be big. They just kind of wanted it. I think it sort of shifted and they wanted it to be all about Israel. Not the Gentiles, but, but, but us against them. And, and, and yet here Jesus is saying, oh, it's going to be big. So big, in fact, that all the birds of the air are going to be coming and nesting in its branches. He'll say it more clearly in our text today as we look at it later on. Uh, He's talking about the Gentiles coming in. He's saying that this is going to be a universal kingdom, not just for Israel, but for all, for the nations. And all of these things he's trying to speak into uh, the, the, the unmet expectations, the misalignment, the gap that has formed in Israel between what they wanted the Messiah to be and his kingdom to be and what it really will be. He's hoping, I think, that you and I, they would bridge that gap by trusting him. Okay, it might not look like what I wanted. My life might not look like what I wanted it to be, what I thought God would do with it. But I can see, okay, it's first and fundamentally this and this and this. And I can lower myself and receive that. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When, when we um, in our lives come to these places of unmet expectations, in particular with relation to God, what we thought he would do and what he's really doing, we really actually come to a fork in the road. And I want us to see this before we press into point number two. We really come to this fork in the road. We have, in other words, two options. We can either open up to God. Say, you know what? I think I must have been wrong. I think maybe what I was desiring or planning or hoping for was a little bit off. If this is what you're doing, show me where your kingdom is in it. I want to see you. I trust you. Here I am laying my life down. Realign me. (laughs) Correct me. Shape me. Open my eyes. That's one option. The other option 
And it's going to be the option that that ruler in the synagogue takes takes is, is, is to go in this direction and to say, no, no, no. I am not willing to get on board with this version uh, uh, of the kingdom. I'm not willing to lower what my you know, expectations were, what my plans for, in the, the rule in the synagogue, is my plans for prestige and power and authority. Now you're talking about it being this small little thing that's working on my heart. Oh, that sounds good. And, and now the Gentiles are going to be with me in this game. None of that sounds good. No, no, no. I'm out. We double down on our interpretations of things. And we say, no, you can't be the Messiah. This can't be from God because it doesn't accord with what I want. And inevitably what ends up happening is our, heart, our hearts start hardening. Our eyes get blind, more, more and more blind. And we actually kind of miss the kingdom of God as it moves right on by us. The way I think I put it last week is it's like, For this ruler there in the synagogue and for us, when we're unwilling to receive the Messiah as he is, God as he says he is, and let him correct us, when we're unwilling to open to him and humble ourselves, it's as if uh, the kingdom of God is this train that pulls into the station. The doors open. You can see, and you guys kind of go, I don't think I like what's inside. You let the door close, and it just goes right on by without you. You miss it. You'll miss it. And that really leads to this um, second point now. Uh, We miss. We resist. And then we miss. This is verses 22 to 30 in particular. Hopefully now you'll start to see why I spent some time reviewing last week. Because it's actually quite Interesting, as I was pressing into these verses, I began to see the same themes just being fleshed out further. Uh, the stuff that was established in those parables, uh, what we will see is that now uh, Jesus talking not just about the ruler of the synagogue or whatever, but, but Israel at, at large, he's kind of saying, listen, you guys are going to miss the kingdom. And, and what we come to find is that they're missing it at, along all three of those lines, at all three of those points with regard to uh, its... its um, organic nature, its internal nature, and its universal nature. All of it, they're missing it. And this is just kind of fleshed out in these verses that follow. So let me show you one by one how this is in fact the case. First, um, we see that the particular religious leaders, but even the nation of of Israel in general, are going to miss the organic nature of the kingdom. Um, This, I think, is actually what's brought out there in verse 23. So there's a guy who comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, there are different ways of taking this. You you could say, oh, perhaps there is like an intramural debate in Israel about how many will be saved. That's possible. In light of the context, though. And where we just came from, I'm inclined to think that what what this man is responding to is how pathetic and unimpressive the kingdom of God looks. This messianic campaign really looks. This guy's kind of looking in and going, okay, this is it. So, will those who are saved be few? Like, Jesus, you're claiming to be, they're talking about you like the Christ, and we're talking about going to, 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 uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem to die, and all these, you're talking about, is this it? Is this the number that are going to be saved? Is it going to be this small group of fishermen and social outcasts and, and, and morally questionable people? Where are the, the religious leaders and the powerful and the upper echelon? What? This is unimpressive. This is a lot smaller. It's as if he missed that idea that the kingdom of God is organic and the parable that it's going from a seed to a tree, that it's going, that birds of the air, all the birds of the air are going to nest in its... That doesn't sound like a few to me. That sounds like all the nations are coming in. And yet here they are going, I don't know, I still don't see it. This looks tiny, unimpressive to me. And I wonder, I wonder if you feel that way yourself about God's work, perhaps in your own life. We're, we're prone to look for metrics, right? 
we're taught to do that, especially in our culture, to look for metrics. And that's not always a bad thing, but we want to kind of get the numbers and go, okay, have I grown spiritually? Okay, how's my ministry doing? Okay, is God, and we kind of take those numbers, is God really at work here? Is God really on the move in my life? And there may very well be some of us here who just go, no. I don't see any evidence of this. I don't think God's at work. I don't think the kingdom's here at all. It's unimpressive and pathetic in relation to me, at least. And again, what we can do is begin to humble ourselves and God will open our eyes to the way his kingdom is advancing, even in the mundane, even in the seemingly small and unimpressive. Jesus' messianic campaign looked pathetic in so many ways. And yet we know that, that from that seed, when it drops in the ground there in Jerusalem and then explodes up in his resurrection, it will move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And on principle, it's the same sort of thing he's doing in yours and my life. You might not be able to identify him, but he's there. He's there. Second thing we notice is that they miss... Um, the kingdom of God and its fundamentally internal nature. Now, for this man who asked this question about those who are saved and will it be few, Jesus does not, if you notice, actually address his concern with numbers directly. Instead, what he's going to do is focus on what a person must do or maybe in particular what a person must be to be saved. Instead of how many, this or that, let's count, he's saying, let's just make sure you're one of them. And he starts to talk along those lines, and this is where we shift towards the idea that the kingdom of God is fundamentally internal. But let me read these haunting verses to you uh, once more, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Verses 24 to 27, look at them again. Strive to enter through the narrow door, Jesus says. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then he will begin to say we ate or then you will begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, why do I say that here we see those in Israel missing the internal nature of the kingdom? We see the effect of pushing back on that point and they miss the internal nature of the kingdom and therefore they miss the kingdom itself. They're shut out from it. I wonder if you caught it. These um, these men and women, whoever they are that Jesus is, is addressing in this story here, they're knocking on the door. They're knocking on the door to the kingdom. They are assured that they belong there. They are sure. Check the guest list one more time. I know my name will be there. Are you kidding me? I was in church every Sunday. I did all the things. I had all the externals. For them, man, it was all the ritual stuff and the religious stuff. It was, it was, it was being present there in the synagogue. It was making the sacrifices. It was being children of Abraham and heirs of the covenant and the promise. Man, doesn't that count for something? Let us in. Surely a mistake has been made. They had everything externally. But they lack the one fundamental thing. Namely, a deep, abiding, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, the King of this kingdom. Jesus says it two times. Verse 25 and in verse 26. I do not know where you come from. In other words, I don't know you. Know you. 
have relationship with you. I don't ultimately care about the religious game. I don't ultimately care about the rituals and all these other things if I don't have your heart. If you don't know me and I don't know you, vicinity is not enough, brothers and sisters. This is what's so sobering and humbling about this. Didn't we eat and drink in your presence? Didn't we listen as you taught? Yes, but what did you do with me? What did you do with what you heard? It's not just being present in church. Plenty who sit in the pews will be cast out from the kingdom of God. Do you know me? Is your heart opening to me? That's the issue. The kingdom is fundamentally internal. Oh, it will explode out of the life with transformative effect. Power. But it first begins here, on the inside of a man, on the inside of a woman. And again, we have to ask ourselves where we are with this. Are we missing this? You know, we can do religious stuff for so many different reasons. I'll give you a few. We can do religious stuff to get other people to think we're cool. We can do religious stuff to get ourselves to think we're cool. Like we have this shame and guilt. And so we go to church to pay our penance. We start to feel better about justified, better about ourselves. We go, we can do religious stuff to try to get God in our debt. If I do, you will give. None of those, none of those get you into the kingdom of God. You could do a whole lot of church work. A lot of sweat in the name of Jesus and your heart be far from him. He wants you to come in here. You want to know why he wants to come in here? So you can adore him, love him, worship him for what he's done, that he's done the work. Let that transform and move our hearts. That's, that's where it begins. Third. So we're just tracing these three points again now in this latter te- part of the text. And we're recognizing that they're missing it at every point because they've resisted, because they've not let Jesus realign them or let these parables and the reality of the kingdom speak into them. They're going to miss the kingdom. They're going to miss its organic nature. They're going to miss its internal nature. Now we see they miss its universal nature. Verses 28 through 30. Verses 28 through 30. Um, Look at this with me again. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south. And recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be Last. If I could boil down what he's saying. Okay, so he talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. Some of you know, because I'll pause and even preach from Genesis from time to time. I've been going through Genesis in my own personal kind of devotions and times with the Lord in the mornings. And one of the things that you notice is that for each one of those patriarchs there, kind of the, the, the head fathers in Israel, kind of the, the, the headwaters of the people of, of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for each one of them, God reiterates his covenant promise personally. He comes, he shows up, and he speaks to them about uh, you know, the covenant he's making and what he's going to do with them. And every time, what he will tell them is, listen, I am going to bless you and the family that comes forth from you, and through that family, I am going to bless the nations. I'm going to bless you, Israel. But it's for the purpose of mediating that blessing to all. All the peoples, all the world, the kingdom is universal. And he is saying here, you guys took confidence that you were of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But somewhere in the middle of that, you developed an us versus them mentality. 
that it's kind of not us for the nations, but us against the nations. Ugh, the Gentiles, the dogs, the ugh. Get them out of here. We don't want them. You didn't, you wouldn't rejoice if they came into the kingdom and sat around the table. You would throw up in your mouth. What are they doing here? You've missed the very movement the kingdom has been on from the very beginning. From the moment I initiated it, I was aiming at all the peoples. People from the north and the south and the east and the west. They are pulling up chairs around the kingdom, uh, the table in the kingdom of God. But your, ta- your chair has been removed. You're cast out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth as a horrifying image, right? The idea, I think, is there's both this sorrow because they've missed it, this deep, this deep grief, the weeping, sorrow because they've missed it. And I used to read the gnashing of teeth as kind of like God's, a response to God's inflicting punishment, pain, like physical pain, like, ah. I actually think, and I don't have time to do this with you, but what it's actually talking about is the rage. In other words, I see what I wanted. I thought I would be there. I'm not. So I'm furious at a God who could do this to me, who would dare shut the door in my face. That sort of a thing. It's actually the same word that's used when I think it's Stephen who's giving that speech. And he says, listen, Israel, you are so hard hearted. The kingdom's essentially moving on without you. It says that they plug their ears and they gnash their teeth and they run on them and kill them. How dare you say that? It's an anger. We missed it. We're so sad we missed it. We're so mad at the God who would do this to us. Even though, as we see, like a hen over her chicks, trying desperately to bring you in, you were not willing. Okay. Now, I want to ask, and um, I think there's a question. That emerges here. I, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. It may be considered a parenthesis, but I, I think it, it might actually be the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. There's a question that emerges as we're reading this text carefully, and um, uh, let me tell you what it is. If you've noticed, Jesus is here speaking of people that think they are in, that were assured of themselves up to the very end. That's why they're knocking on the kingdom, the door. To let us, there's a mistake. I mean, they're assured to the very end. We're good. God and I are tight. And yet they're not good. And the question that presses on me in these moments is, how does that happen? How do you get there? To where you're knocking on the door and you hear from the other, I don't know you. So you're going to pull up the chair for me. He's going, there's no chair with your name on it here, brother. How do we get so self-deceived, so twisted, so backwards? Really, I suppose this is what Jesus is saying when he's saying strive to enter the narrow Door, the word in the Greek there is agonizomai, agonize. Strive. In other words, what he's saying is, is don't be like these people I'm about to explain that don't make it through. In the first place we can begin to try to not be like them, to strive to enter that narrow door, is to say, what went wrong here? How do, how do we even see it? And then we'll ask, perhaps how do we avoid it? But first, what Happened. How does this sort of self-deception happen? I don't have time to deal with every way, but I'm at least going to speak of one way. And I'm going to speak of the way that I think comes out in the synagogue scene there at the beginning of our text. It's why I read such a long text. I wanted to go back there again and look at this. And I mentioned this last week, but I didn't get to flesh it out in full detail. So I'm going to do that a little bit more this morning. But with this brother... 
uh, in the synagogue, this ruler there, as Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath, and this demon that had been oppressing her for 18 years is cast out. They watch this. His brother comes to a fork in the road. Okay, as Jesus is telling him about the kingdom of God, and it's not looking the way that he really wanted, but he can't deny that there's some serious power here. But man, this doesn't seem political. It doesn't seem the way that I wanted it to go. He's facing that fork in the road. What am I going to do? Am I going to open myself up? Say, listen, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I do need everything that you have to offer. Maybe realign my plans, my purposes. I release it all to you. Or is he going to? We know what he's going to do. Double down. But here's what I want you to catch. Here's the subtlety of what happens. He does not, when he doubles down, go, okay, well, if you're the Messiah, if you're the, the, the representative of this kingdom from God, I guess I don't want anything to do with the kingdom of God. I guess I'm out. No, he doesn't say that. That would be too honest. That would be too real. That would be too, too, too upfront. Instead, it's going to be more subtle. It's going to be more sinister. He's going to convince himself that he's still in the kingdom. But this Jesus fella, nah, couldn't be. He's going to use the scriptures, twist the scriptures to support his own selfish desires. And hence convince himself in the process he and God are still tight, even as he is leaving the kingdom and letting it go on without him so in the synagogue there he uses the argument about the sabbath if you caught it he's indignant that jesus would, would, would dare to heal this woman on the sabbath god says it's a day of rest surely that took a lot of work therefore conclusion you can't be the messiah the messiah will care for god's law jesus said, i just fulfilled what the sabbath was all about by giving this woman rest are you kidding me he goes no you're not in the kingdom i'm in the kingdom you're out. I'm in. That's how it happens. That's how you end up years later knocking on the door going, I'm here. And from the other side, you hear the voice of the one you rejected. I don't know you. Now, we twist the scriptures to support our own desires we convince ourselves that we are on god's team even as we remove ourselves from it that's the crazy thing that's the dangerous thing and we are prone to the very same sort of stuff surely you have seen it before i get into some heavier examples let me at least give you uh somewhat of a humorous one with my son this is in our nature this is where it is right now it's cute Okay, and my name is Levi, I'll, I'll share with you in a moment. Someday, soon, probably, not going to be so cute. Let me tell you how this plays out for Levi, how you twist the facts to get what you want. So Levi's favorite thing right now in all of the world is our Roomba. Okay, you can imagine, right? I mean, if I were a little boy, you know, again, and I, I we had these like robot things cruising around the house. That's like what every little boy could dream of. And so... I kid you not, at least 30 times a day, press the Roomba, Daddy? Press the Roomba? So you got to press it to turn it on, right? He wakes up first thing in the morning, press the Roomba, Daddy? Daddy, press the Roomba? We've had to limit. I mean, she's only got so much battery. I'm like, bro, she's got to sleep. You don't give her any break. I like the house being clean, but come on now. Um, so we've limited it to after his nap, all right? So after his nap, first thing he'll say, press the Roomba? You go ahead. You go press that Roomba. But here's what would happen as he's asking earlier in the day and things like that. He knows what the answer is going to be. It's now settled in the, in the rhythm of our day. But he'll still ask it. Daddy, press the Roomba, press the Roomba. I've got to be very careful how I respond in the words that I choose. Because one time I said something along these lines. Oh, uh, Levi, this is hard. He's looking at you with those big eyes. You know, it's like, Levi, Levi I, I'm not sure this is the right time. You want to know what he heard? Sure. Sure, sure. Press the Roomba, sure. No, no, Levi, I said, I said, I said, I'm not sure it's the right time. Sure, and he's off. He heard what he wanted to hear. He kind of cherry-picked from my sentence, right? And he's off, and the Roomba's on. It's like, oh my goodness. But we're doing this. We're doing this with the Scriptures. And that's what I need you to understand is, is in our hearts, the desires, the things that we want. There's such this, this power.
powerhouse for distortion. We want things so badly, we will twist even God's word to get it and convince ourselves that he is with us in it. We've got to know that sort of stuff happens, and it's been happening throughout Christian history. And if you ever try to evangelize, this is the sort of stuff that they'll say. I brought up the Crusades last week. What do you think that was? God's with us in the fight. This is God's fight. We're going to take back the Holy Land. We're going to convert the heathen. You have a thirst for power in your heart. Grab a few verses from the Bible, put them in your back pocket, and you go to war. A war that God is not in. You do things that still to this day are blemishes upon the bride of Christ. And defame his name among the Gentiles. You see this. We could talk about slavery. Yes, it's awesome. We love the story of William Wilberforce and how his biblical convictions and things undergirded the abolitionist movement that he kind of moved forward there in Great Britain. But man, we don't want to talk about the other side and how many of our brothers and sisters in Christ would would look in the Bible and kind of say, "Ah, I think it's supporting slavery. I was reading just the other day, Jonathan Edwards, probably the most brilliant theologian America's ever produced, owned slaves with a clear conscience. It's in the Bible. God didn't say anything about it. All right. It's helpful. I mean, goodness, if I, time is, I, now, listen, Jonathan Edwards is amazing, but I was reading this article, and it was profound, because, because this guy was talking about how he learned about Jonathan Edwards in seminary and things, and, and, and they would talk about how Jonathan Edwards would study for sometimes 10, 12, 14 hours a day, and, and, you know, as a, as a young seminarian, I don't know why we're this way, but as men, you know, it's like, like, you know, in, in the gym, it's like, can I lift more? In seminary, it's like, can I study more? You know, and, 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 and so these guys were idolizing Jonathan Edwards. And then what, what dawned on him later, what dawned on him was a lot later was, oh my goodness, I bet he had all the time to do that because he had slaves doing the other work. That's at least part of the reason his house could be upkept. And sure, Sarah Edwards did great stuff, but you got slaves. So you got to wonder what's in the heart as you desire to do your books and you desire to do your sermons and you desire to X, Y, and Z. You kind of go, I think that's probably okay because I'm doing God's work. You see this? Again, I don't know the full story here, so I just spoke out of turn. But we do the same thing. We could talk about the oppression of women, right? Oh my gosh, Ephesians 5.22 in the hands of a carnal Christian, so-called. It's so destructive, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I mean, how many women does it not just send a shiver down their spine because they've seen what that means to some men? And it's like, you cherry-pick that verse, make it mean what you want, and forget the verse that just comes right following We looked at it last week. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, laid his life down for her, died for her. I'm looking at the full flow of thought and I'm going, which call is more dramatic? Which call is more devastating? To submit or to sacrifice and die? Which one goes lower? Who's called to go lower, the man or the woman? And yet men have so often picked the one verse they wanted and used it to come over top of the woman. Thinking that that's what God wants. I mean, get me some more toast, honey, and don't you burn it. Oh, I'm telling you, it's at work in your life and my life too. It's more subtle than you know. Oh, here's why I won't hang out with that person. We have a verse on that. Here's why I'm bitter. Here's why, you know, I don't think God would want me to deal with them anymore. Now, again, there can be legitimate things, but a lot of times our desires are personal offenses and hurts. We twist and we use scripture. We put God's name on stuff he wouldn't want it on. I'll stop there.
Let me ask the question, how do we prevent it? If, if this is, at least to some degree, how it happens, how do we prevent it? And this is perhaps a tougher question, but I don't have the time to really deal with it. All I'm going to point us back to is, is what I've been saying. Namely, I think the place to begin is surrender. I think what we have to ask ourselves honestly and on a regular basis is, can I, can I say to Jesus, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want to do with my life, it's yours. If that is the posture, this sort of thing is hard is hard to do. But if underneath our Christianity there are things that we just don't want to let go of, those are the things that are going to twist our, our hermeneutics, twist our, 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 our understanding of Scripture. Let me just say this. The disciples, they follow Jesus. Listen. They're a bunch of fools by many accounts, right? You read the stories and you're, goodness gracious, all they're doing is kind of bumbling through. How in the world is Jesus putting up with them? They don't know much, it seems. They certainly aren't all that ethically great. They're always talking about who's better and all these other things. It seems ridiculous. But I'll tell you the one thing that they did have, this, a surrender. When Jesus shows up and he calls them, they leave everything. Immediately we're told, and just follow He has an open door into their heart. Rearrange, change. Sure, they push back. But at the end of the day, they let him rearrange and realign. When the expectations and then reality, when there's a gap between it, they let him bridge the gap. They don't try to do it by twisting to kind of get things to be what they want. They let him do it. Okay, you show me. I guess I missed it. You tell me. If you have that, Jesus can work with that. You're like clay in his hands. I think this really is why Jesus says, unless you, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He's saying the only way this thing begins, the only thing this, the way this carries out is if you're, you, you, you lay your life in my hands. If there's stuff you're holding, hey, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, is that enough? All you're going to do is take these things you really want and use it to twist and, and abuse God's name. Like so many before us have. I've done it. So the image then would be, I think, this. Are we taking God in our hands and trying to manipulate him like clay? Let me get the scriptures to say what I want. Get the kingdom to be what I want it to be. Convince myself I'm fine when I'm not. Or are we like clay in his hand? You shape me. You make me. You take whatever plans I had and rearrange it. It's okay. You talk to me about my sin. It's all right. I know you love me. I know your kingdom is here. I want to see it. These guys, moving now to the last point. These guys, are uh, these religious leaders in particular in Israel there, are going to so push, so resist against Christ that they're in fact not just going to take him up in their hand and try to manipulate him to be what they want or take God in their hands and manipulate him. They're going to take God in their hands and try to kill him. They're going to take Jesus up in their hands and try to kill him. And that's really where we go next in verses 31 to 35. Uh, In verse 31, some Pharisees come and inform him that Herod wants to kill him. Uh, Herod wants to kill Jesus, and Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to talk about his death. But as he does so, something profound comes to the surface in this narrative. And here's what I want you to see. Yes, it is true. People will resist and they will reject him and they will ultimately go so far as to take them up in their hands and kill him. But what starts to come out in these verses is that Jesus is not just a helpless victim here. He is a willing victim. In other words... These men are not ultimately going to take his life from him 
What we come to see is that he is in fact ultimately going to lay his life down for them. He just cast a demon out from this girl with a word. Certainly he could stop a few brothers from killing him. They don't take his life. He's laying it down. As a sacrifice for them. This was hinted at back up in verse 22. I wonder if you caught it. It's, it's a big theme in uh, Luke's gospel. But verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. We're since Luke 9. We've been in, 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 in um, this part of Luke's gospel where Jesus is now journeying or traveling or he has set his face, we're told, towards Jerusalem. Luke 9, he tells him, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The people there are going to kill me, but I'm going to rise. And then he goes, listen, therefore he sets his face to go there. And here he is still traveling towards Jerusalem. And Luke is reminding us he's on his way to the cross. They are not dragging him there. He is journeying there. He has set his face there. He knows what waits for him there. But he's going in love and grace and mercy for the very people that resist him and hate him and want to kill him. They don't even realize it. So here is Jesus then with his face set towards Jerusalem, journeying towards Jerusalem, even as he in our text is warning Israel about the very real possibility of being cast out from the kingdom of God. He himself is willingly headed towards the cross where he will in fact be cast out as well. Fourth. Think with me about what we've seen in our text to this point. I want you to realize that this is ultimately what Jesus is experiencing on the cross for us. I mean, what is the cross? Jesus uh, being thrown out of the kingdom of God. The very king being dethroned, as it were, being cast out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? But Jesus knocking on the door saying, Wait a minute. Didn't I obey you at every point? Didn't I walk with you through my entire life? What is happening at the cross? But then God's response. I tell you, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. He becomes the worker of iniquity. He is cast out from the kingdom. He experiences the weeping, and to some degree the gnashing and the pain. He takes it. For us. For us. So that we who have resisted, we who have rejected, may be brought back in. We who twist his word and make all manner of evil from it, may find a way back in. Now, to be clear, we have to humble ourselves. We have to repent. We have to receive the work of the sun. And what we see in Israel is it's not going to go well. There are going to be many who will turn on him and, 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 and that will be the end of the story. I think that's the meaning of Jesus' words there in verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. I'm making a way for your salvation, for your peace, but you will not have it. I'm experiencing all I'm warning you about. So that if you would turn, I landed on me, and the door's open to you. But there are many in Israel who will not turn. But, and this is where I'll leave us, amazingly, surprisingly, our text ends with a glimmer of hope for Israel, and by extension, I think, for us as well. 
I wonder if you caught it. To this point, I mean, I don't know if there's been any good news in this text, right? I mean, I suppose you can gather that from the fact that the people are coming in from the north and the south and the east and the west. That's me. Oh, good. But most of this has just been directed towards you're missing it. You're missing it. You're resisting it. You're missing it. It's not going to go well. And we've talked about it. We resist. We miss. And then all of a sudden at the end, he just drops this line. We resist. We miss. We bless. We bless. Look at verses 34 and 35 with me. It's this glimmer of hope. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he's quoting Psalm 118, verse 26 there. It's a blessing that was spoken to pilgrims, those who were away from the land of Israel. When they came into the Holy Land, they're in Jerusalem, this blessing would be spoken over them. In the psalm in particular, it's about worshipers coming into the temple to worship God. And this blessing that's given, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now Jesus is applying it to himself in many ways here and saying, you guys are going to say that to me. You're going to see that I am the messianic king. You're going to, and you're going to come in to the present. You're going to come into the kingdom. That's what I think is going on here. There are different ways of taking this verse. I'm not going to, not going to try to act like I have the only interpretation, but I think, here's what I think is going on. In light of other texts like Luke 21, 24, Romans 11, 11 through 32. I'm inclined to think that Jesus is referring to some time near the, the sort of end, near his, his second return, or near his return, when, when Israel, ethnic Israel, will humble themselves, turn and open to the Messiah. And they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see the kingdom and his king and the king. And what we gather from this, you guys, is the long-suffering, persevering, merciful heart of our God. He's just not willing to wash his hands, ever. I mean, absolutely, judgment will come. I don't mean to, uh, to undermine that reality. It is a threat. It is a real threat. And people will experience it. But you see the lengths to which he is willing to go. Like you and I would say, okay, they just killed me. I think I'm done with them. I think I want to move on. But our God says, okay, they just killed me. I'm going to take that murder and I'm going to make it the means of their salvation. Zechariah 12, they're going to look on you and they have pierced. And they're they're going to weep and they're going to mourn. But it's been the good kind. The kind that receives him. The kind that ends in joy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How could God do this for us? And he's going to do it for you. He's pursuing you. If there are places where you're just hard to him and you're not wanting to soften, this is the kind of God who's calling you into his kingdom. This is the one who's saying, put the clay into my hands. I'll make something awesome with it. He might not get it, but it's going somewhere incredible. There's a seat for you around the table in the kingdom of God. He wants you there. I suppose I'll end with that. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that you don't just lob grenades of judgment from the outside. We deserve it absolutely for the way that we have resisted and pushed against and rebelled against you. But you don't just lob grenades of judgment from the outside. You enter into the war and you let the grenades land on you first. You take our judgment. And you call us to repent and receive. 
so that that narrow door can be opened to us and our name there on the table in the kingdom of heaven. And yet we have no business being there save for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for your persistence with us. I pray everyone in this room would come under the shadow of your wing and sing out, bless it, see who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.